This is Creating Windows, Not Bars, a monthly show on Justice Radio on WMPG with your hosts, Mackenzie Kelly and Linda Small. Today we are talking with Sue Mason of What's Next Washington, ending a lifetime of punishment about the systemic challenges of returning citizens with conviction histories and the progress and challenges of economic justice. But first, a little information about us. I'm Mackenzie Kelly, a recovery coach and peer mentor coordinator of Healthy Acadia and the program director of Reentry Sisters. And I'm Linda Small, a project coordinator with Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition and executive director of Reentry Sisters, an organization with a trauma-informed and gender approach to reentry support. For the past several months, we have worked together to provide support and community for justice-impacted women as they reunify with their families, look for work and housing, and complete their educational aspirations. Our show explores safety and community and ask what it's like for people to come home after serving time in prison. This is where we are, uh, where employers and public sector partners really need to take a look at the system that, that we're navigating against and quit screening people out and screen people in. Let's get back to markers of stability. That's my little story. It's yes. My- well, I will say that was an appropriate yeah. lead in because when we look at this capitalist system of corrections, along with our capitalist society, mm-hmm. it is a vicious cycle and they feed one another. And your story speaks to they messed up your markers of stability. They messed they up. Did, right. So, right. They, That's exactly right. I mean, what I they thought did. of it that way, but they did, you know, and it's so funny because the judge at the time was like, Miss Mason, we're really sorry. I mean, I had a job, I had a life, I blah, 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 you know. And I and um and he said, Miss Mason, we're really sorry. This it's not like this hasn't happened before. We apologize and good luck on the rest of your life. But they didn't realize the impact that they had. And there's no mechanism to undo it. Mess with my markers of stability, man. So when we think about markers of stability, though, um, one of the things that that would have worked for me was that I'd been out for so long and I had been working for so long and I had been paying my rent for so long. Right. And even through all of this, you know, all of these no's, like we still keep going. We have 79 million people, like I said, 73 million of us have no further criminal legal system involvement. We do get over it. We do move past it when employers or housing providers or Others, you know, people that are in education institutions are pulling background checks to qualify people for, you know, uh, education programs like in nursing or whatever. They need to look at, you know, what a person has done. Look for these markers of stability. Listen, paying your rent on time every month is a marker of stability. Um, Showing up to work every day, you know, day after day is a marker of stability. Uh, having your kids in your life, getting a car loan, um, you know, getting a credit card. Those are markers of stability, you know, going through a certificate program or an education program, getting a degree is a real marker of stability. The recidivism rate for people with degrees is something like 4% for bachelors and 2% for masters, right? And something like, I want to say six or 8% for associates. I mean, it's low. And so when we look at when when people are rearrested and go back to prison or jail, almost 90% of them are unemployed. Yeah, that's staggering. Right? And so like having access to employment, which gives you access to everything else, by the way, is imperative, right? And so we've got employers in this nation that seem to have carte blanche to say no, even though 
we need to work and we're offering ourselves to work. We're otherwise qualified. I'm not asking you to give me a job for which I am not qualified. I'm not. And I'm not asking you to give somebody a job who is not ready for the opportunity. You know, if they, you know, you've got a nuclear power plant and this person's only been out two years and you're like, I might want you to wait longer. I'm good with that. But packing boxes, sorry, no, right? Give that person the opportunity to prove themselves. And, you know, I assert that people with conviction histories are not statistically different from their peers on the job, that they succeed or fail at the same rates and for the same reasons. Like if you hadn't worked out in that packing job, it wasn't because you were like criming it up. <laughs> now I'm going to go on that, you know, box packing and I'm going to go cram it up. No, you, if you had not worked out, it would be because you were a no-show, you had transportation problems, you had daycare problems, or you got yourself a better job, just like everybody else. That's what your peers are doing. But the odds would have been, and the statistics show that you would have actually kicked butt at that box packing job because of the gratitude. You just want an opportunity. You just want to work. And you'd have probably been promoted faster than anybody else and made supervisor and worked more hours and been willing, right, to learn more and take on more responsibility. That's actually what the data shows. Companies, if you're listening to me, go through your data, look at all your employees and mark who has conviction histories and who hasn't. And you will see for yourself that they are not statistically different than their peers and they succeed and fail at the same rates and for the same reasons as other people and start hiring more people with conviction histories. So glad that you said that, to be honest, <clears throat> just right? because I feel like employers are missing out on this huge pool of uh, people who have been incarcerated. Uh, do you think there's actually any reason why they shouldn't? hire us or or is there more of a reason for the fact that they should hire us i know that you have brought up the you know the fact of gratitude mm -hmm. do you think that these things affect how we work or our employment or employability i would say yes so recidivism rates plummet if somebody's given a living wage job uh within i want to say it's either 30 or 60 days post release like they go from something like uh, 60% down to like 8% if they have a living wage job, right? Like people just want the opportunity to work and take care of themselves. And what that says to me too, is that it's living wage when people are economically desperate, when there's poverty involved, then it's hard to get people to be grateful, but we still are. We're like 12 bucks an hour. Okay, let's go. I got to start somewhere ready to do it, right? It's really how we are. And here's the other thing. Hiring anybody is a crapshoot. Ask any HR person. You could have your star candidate. Wow, I can't wait to get this person on board. And they just completely flail and, you know, flame out. And I'm not talking about a formerly incarcerated person. I'm talking about regular, regular people, right? Everybody mm -hmm. knows that, that it's a crapshoot when you hire. You don't know until you get them on the job whether they're going to work out or not. And that's just the case with everybody. However, people that are grateful, they do tend to do better. We do tend to do better, right? And you'll know right away whether people are gonna be good or not, be gonna stay or go if they might need a little support or if they're just gonna take off, right? And so 
like this, this thing of trying to figure out if somebody's like a criminal or they're going to suck or whatever, right? It, it's <laughs> preposterous. It's preposterous. Here's the question to ask yourself. Are they otherwise qualified? Are they going to show up to work? They say they are just like the other person that you, you talk to, right? Uh, so give them an opportunity. And if they don't move on to the next one. We have a mechanism for people, you know, not working out. It's called, um, we're letting you go. <laughs> Right, like, right, uh, right, yeah, and so, you know, yeah, uh, one more quick thing, yeah, HR has all the tools and resources that they need to make sure that their um places of work are safe and productive, right? Because here's the thing I am very focused on safety and productivity, and so they can they can use the same strategies that they use for everybody if you hire anyone and they are being inappropriate or they are you know behaving in certain ways or they're showing up late or something strange is going on don't tolerate it right you don't have to tolerate it right mostly when when things happen on the job uh it is because management has not stepped in to intervene when somebody's bad behavior is showing up right i don't care who it is formerly incarcerated or not that that HR needs to get better in interventions when people are, you know, not acting right, right? And so you can find that stuff out usually pretty early, but mostly overall, formerly incarcerated talent is ready to go, ready, you know, put me in coach type energy. Right. You know, one thing that caught my eye on uh, what's next Washington website mm -hmm. uh, it states, evidence shows that people with conviction histories are loyal, hardworking, and driven to succeed. Mm -hmm. And the data also shows that they pose low safety risk, and when welcomed and supported, are net contributors to workplace productivity, which is really astounding information that um, seems to just uh, be living in a closet somewhere. And so... How can we use data collection and analysis message um, analysis to level the playing field for folks with conviction histories? So um, I think we need some studies. So I did a report. Um, I did a, a study on the Washington State Convention Center edition. It was a billion dollar construction project in Seattle. And we were collecting data on the performance of union craft workers, right? Um, union tradespersons um, on that site. We were comparing people with conviction histories to people without. Um, our hypothesis was what I said, that we are not statistically different than our peers, that whether we succeed or fail on the job, it was for the same reasons and at the same rates. And we wanted to prove that. And so we collected this data um, with uh, the permission of all the subs on the, on the site. Um, and with the permission of the people with conviction histories, right? And what we found out was that they work more hours. <laughs> they were promoted faster, right? Like they were loyal, hardworking employees. Um, and that uh, if there were issues, it was just the same issues as anybody else. Tardiness was usually the, you know, an issue for everybody across the board, except for formerly incarcerated people, right? Like. They were more loyal, more hours, you know, and just more stable, actually. Um, and then 
we uh, the other part, so we did this uh, quantitative analysis, but we also did a qualitative analysis. And what we did was we asked formerly incarcerated people questions like, have you ever, so say you're a journey level welder or iron worker or painter, have you ever been turned down for work, even as a union laborer uh, person because of your conviction history? And they all said yes. And they said, um, and we would say, tell me about that. You know, how long ago was it? 14 years. I was, uh, I went to a national aerospace manufacturer in Washington state, or I went to the port of Seattle, you know, I was, I was uh, dispatched out there by my union and I had to go through a background screening, but it didn't come back for two weeks. And I was on the job and they walked me off the job. Ugh. And I would say, did you ever go back? Did you ever try again? He said, never. And how long ago was that? 14 years, six years, nine years. And so what we learned was that even for journey level workers, that they could be turned down and humiliated, even though they had the same number of hours, they worked for all these different employers. They had, these people were, they owned homes, they owned cars, they had lives, they mm -hmm. were partnered with children usually, right? And they were denied employment at, you know, regulated sites, whether it was schools or hospitals or ports of call or airports or um, aerospace uh, manufacturing uh, corporations, right? Um, they were turned down, even though they were as qualified as their peers. And to a person, they would not go back. And so these industries are missing out on the talent they need. They scream and yell about, oh, we can't find labor. We can't find talent. Well, your talent's there. Mm -hmm. You're turning them down. Yeah. So yeah. the systemic issues that you're talking about with employers, and, and we talked a little bit about fair chance employers, and also there's a whole category of fair chance housing, which we haven't touched on yet, which has the oh. same type of issues, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Seattle Fair Chance Bill that was passed in 2017? And is that like a glimmer of hope for folks that we could roll out in other places? I would love if that bill was passed in other places. So it is the most progressive housing bill in the nation. And the Rental Housing Authority sued and won. It just went through the courts and was this year, right? And the judge ruled against us and said that they could ask. And so we had, you know, five years of data to prove that nobody was harmed and yet it was still overturned. You are listening to Creating Windows, Not Bars, Justice Radio with Linda Small and Mackenzie Kelly. We passed the bill and it took effect in 2018. And basically that bill said you could not pull a criminal background check on anybody applying for tenancy in Seattle. Now wow. it's an expensive place to live. So it would be nice if we could pass it in King County or in the state of Washington, we've tried, it's been a fight. The city has five years of data to prove that safety and you know was not impacted. And so we need to go back and fight again. I landlords have all the tools that they need to screen people. They look at your credit. They look at your past rental history. They look and see if you have some means of income, right? And those are good tools to understand whether somebody can pay the rent, right? Now there's other variables out there that impact people. That's for sure. But, you know, there's no data to prove that people with conviction histories are worse tenants than others. 
right? There just isn't. And so we are, you know, using that background check again to screen people out and not screen people in. If they are otherwise qualified, they've got the job, they've got the rental history you're asking for, they've got, you know, um, everything that you need, this other barrier is destabilizing people. And I'm talking years later. Yeah. So I know that we have a lot of community partners, if you will, that, you know, will help build us up in, in the society. But do you have any suggestions for people to find and motivate our allies in forwarding economic justice for people with conviction histories? I think that there's a few things that are happening right now that could really move the needle. It's hard to get private employers because they don't have to, right? They don't have to. And I would love to see the federal government get involved in this, right? So like, you know, I just recently spoke about uh, workforce development and formerly incarcerated talent with Chike Agu, and he is at the U.S. Department of Labor. He's way up there. He's the chief innovation officer, I think, like he's a Biden appointee, right? And he gave a very great um, opening about you know, the groups that are impacted um, by unfair employment practices, right? Black, brown, and indigenous folks, immigrants, LGBTQ, women, poor white people, right? Like there's all these groups. And the one area that wasn't discussed that I was there to talk about was that of all those groups, every single one of those groups is impacted by overcriminalization and mass incarceration. And if we don't start talking about that, we are ending up with the same problem because you can take anyone from those groups and get them the training or the education or the certifications that they need. And if the, you know, 30% or more, 40% of the people in those groups also have a conviction history, good luck getting them a job. If you've got 50 people in a training cohort and 10 of them have conviction histories, guess who's getting hired? 40 people not 50, right? When it should be 50, we should have 50 workers out of that training cohort. And we don't, we've only got 40 because the other 10 will be denied based on this background. And so, you know, I think the federal government really needs to make this group uh, uh, part of this, the narrative around barriers to employment, future of work, you know, um, uh, labor pools, that all of that, right? Um, I think that that's really important. I'd also like to see the federal government use the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act uh, to advance our uh, cause, meaning 1.2 trillion will be going into all 50 states that will create tens of millions of jobs over the next 20 to 30 years on infrastructure. Most of that is in heavily regulated sectors. And we have, um, we have, uh, regulatory and occupational licensing laws that keep us out of those sectors. So which will de facto keep us out of those jobs, millions of jobs. And so there's a labor shortage. This is a way for the federal government to step in and say, hey, you know, we're going to waive these regulatory and occupational licensing rules so that people can access this opportunity. And, you know, they state in the legislation and in the rulemaking that they want to um, hire more opportunity youth and returning citizens. Well, you didn't create a mechanism to do that. You didn't, you know, change the regulatory rules or the occupational licensing rules. So how are we going to do that? And we think that this is a really good way to 
um, pilot this and start waiving these rules and, you know, gather some data, prove that safety and, and productivity were not affected, and then repeal or amend these these rules and these laws. And uh, I think that's one strategy that we could use because it's an initiative. It's, you know, it is already got money uh, attached to it. It's got the uh, language attached to it that we want to increase hiring here. And I think that by doing this, we could show private the private sector that we are, you know, ready and able to work and that, you know, again, safety and productivity are maintained. So that's one strategy. Let's hope that's effective. It sounds like it, you know, a combination of data and actually running a pilot program together so that you have evidence-based, right, yes. information 100%. to say, yep. right, right? That, that, yep. that this is the reality. And it takes an awful lot of those messages to counteract the current narrative of these folks are not worth it. They, they can't be trusted, it, which kind of leads me to one of our, our final question. You know, we talked about, you mentioned currently there are 79 million Americans running around there with conviction histories, which is one in three Americans, right? That's just an outrageous number, right? And unfortunately, um, incarceration rates are still accumulating, right? Particularly when we look at the women's population, it is exploding. Um, and so we're going to get to a point where that one in three uh, could be one in two, right? It Unfortunately, will be. by twenty thirty, right? it will be one hundred million Americans will have an arrest or conviction. Right. So, so based on that, that might actually force a change because the whole, entire labor market is going to have perhaps a conviction history attached to them as a potential employee. So how do you see that impacting the future uh, employment? In so this I'm so glad you asked that. So there will be 100 million of us by 2030. And this is where our collective power could kick in. We are part of a campaign called the Bank on 100 Million Campaign. Right. And basically what that is, is our, our desire to organize as many of these hundred million people as we can to say, we want change. We want access. Stop denying us, especially years and years and years later. Right. Like we want the opportunity to ladder out. And so with the bank on 100 million campaign, that would be people like us coming together in coalition to drive the change that we wanna see. We wanna see you using different HR practices. We wanna see you using this R3 score contextualized background check. We wanna see you changing your policies, right? We wanna see you uh, repealing or amending regulatory and occupational licensing barriers. We are your labor. We are your neighbor. We are you know, part of this economy and we want access. So the Bank on 100 Million campaign um, is being rolled out right now. And the idea is that we, you know, collectively, if we start demanding a change in how we're vetted and how we're looked at and how we are, you know, talked about, um, that we think that we can get there, right? Like I've been out for 20 years. Am I technically formally incarcerated? You know, it'd be like saying like <laughs> I'm a former student. Well, how long ago was that? Right? Like I'm formerly kindergartner, right? Like that's dumb. The only reason I'm formally incarcerated is because the society can't get over it. Not me. I'm over it. I've been long over it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. 
But I identify that way because until there's no longer a bias and stigma to being formally incarcerated, I'm still going to claim it so that people can see that when they have this idea in their mind of formerly incarcerated, they need to think of Mackenzie and me, not the guy sitting in a cell with two teardrops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that guy's there. And that guy's probably a really hard worker, by the way. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, they need to have a different idea of who we are and that we are contributors to this economy and this society and that, you know, we're viable uh consumers, candidates for employment, candidates for educational opportunities, loan applicants, um, you know, renters, all that. And so that's what the Bank on 100, 100 Million Coalition is really about, is um, coalescing our, our economic power to push on, on these, um, these sectors to, to let us in. So I'll, we'll have more on that soon. That's great. You know, I'm so glad that you said something about identifying with the formerly incarcerated piece, because I'm lucky to actually work in that formerly incarcerated, um, having issues with drug addiction. And I, I wear that as a badge of honor at this point, you know, because I know other people can relate to that. And I'm trying to do something about it. Now, I don't want to have that like black label on me, if you will, forever. But right now it works for me, you know, uh, because there is such a large population that need that help and support. And I'm just the world is lucky to have people like you, Sue. And you. I mean, really, all of us. Right. Yeah. I mean, we so, help yeah. make the change. Well, what I love about it, you know, and, and I think we're similar in that we we wear it proudly because I need them to know that when they see somebody that they think is lost or there's no hope for that person, that there's a direct path from them to me, from them to you, because we were that person. How many people gave up on us? Everybody, right? Everybody gave up on us. Like she is never going to get it. Well, it turns out that what I needed was support, right? Mm -hmm. I needed somebody to believe in me and I needed to yeah. get help for my addiction and the trauma that I had suffered. And when I did that, kaboom, right? Like people are only stuck where they are because they don't have the support that they need to get out. It's like watching somebody at the bottom of a hole and say, wow, how'd you get down there? You need to get out and then not putting a ladder down, right? Like put the ladder down, yep. let them climb out, yo. And uh, yeah, so yeah, they need to know that there's a direct path from people that are struggling to you and me. Yep, and th and that's why they say the opposite of uh, addiction is connection. Ooh. And I, f and I fully believe that, you know? Yep. So uh, thank you, Sue, for being here. I really appreciate it and giving us such a broad look on the systemic and economic injustices that all of us face being formally incarcerated. Um, in coming shows, we'll explore public safety, the unique stigma justice impacted women face, and the experiences and struggles of returning citizens to create meaningful and productive lives. And next week, please join Representatives Charlotte Warren and Zoe Bocas on Justice Radio to learn what can be done to redefine and reimagine equity, 
restoration, and justice through legislative action. And make sure to visit the Justice Radio Show page on WMPG.org for archived episodes aired on WMPG and WERU. And a big thank you to Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series. 